Before we get things underway, a quick plug for the new season crowdfunding campaign. If you'd like more special guest episodes of The Edict during winter, then please pledge your support to the 9pm Winter Series 2022. I'll tell you more about it later, uh, but the TLDR is just go to the 9pmedict.com slash winter2022 and do the needful. Cheers. The following episode of the 9pm Edict contains politics, strong language, dodgy opinions, and adult themes. Can I get a commitment from both of you that families won't have to pay to see sport on their televisions. Hello, I'm Still Gerian. It's Thursday, the 12th of May, 2022. Welcome to the 9pm election unhinging week the 5th, where it's all about free sport on television. Well, we've we both got a review after the election, but Mark, no. I know we have been... A review. I, yeah, not a well, we're both committed to review, but Mark, can I... <laughs> committed to no, review. Mark, no, the, can I come back to the point we're just making? is important. Uh, no, Mr Morrison, we will not come back to that point. It was, I mean, it was important, but it wasn't all that interesting. Um, but that said, I will have more to say on the leaders' debates later this episode. If... You're new to this podcast, uh, welcome, hello, uh, I hope you managed to cope with some of the, the things I say. These um, election unhinging episodes are really a personal reflection on on what's happening in the election campaign. I'm not trying to be balanced and give each side equal time, that's a fool's errand anyway. Uh, I'm not trying to be comprehensive, uh, I'm just talking about things that I've noticed uh, along the way, uh, given that I've uh, experienced election campaigns at the federal level during the course of my long but not very illustrious life. Uh, so, you know, sit back, relax, pour yourself a drink. I will be shortly. Uh, have you voted yet? Uh, pre-polls, uh, pre-poll voting opened on Monday. I went down on a Monday to Springwood. A spring of wood in the Blue Mountains to to vote. Um, and I was one of, well, according to the Australian Electoral Commission, more than 650,000 people voted in the first two days of pre-polling. And they published a chart, um, I've linked to it on the website, uh, which shows that that's more pre-poll votes in two days than they did in the first week of the 2016 election. Uh, not quite that fierce uh, for the 2019 election, uh, but I reckon by the end of this week they'll have uh, surpassed that. Now, it's worth saying there's only two weeks of pre-polling this time, whereas uh, there were three weeks in the last uh, two um, elections for various reasons. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting on election night, uh, given that the pre-polls will get voted on election night. They vote... Uh, they, they open the ballot boxes and count them uh, from the polling stations and then phone the figures in, and then uh, all the pre-polls are at the, the kind of uh, main office in each electorate, and uh, they they count the pre-polls on election night as well. Postals come in, postal votes come in over the next couple of weeks and one week, however long it takes, and they're added to the total as they come in. I did notice a curious comment this week from uh, 
Susan Lay, who's a governor, a government minister, she was asked how the government would handle RDA, Regional Development Australia, the organisation, if re-elected. And she said, quote, I'm not focused on what happens after the election. I am focused on what happens in the next two weeks. Right now, we're not painting a picture of what we might do in government after the election. I mean, which is which I suppose is true, but you're not meant to say that out loud. You, you're meant to kind of... Aren't you meant to explain what the government would do after the election and then we decide whether that's something we want to vote for or not? But no, the government is very much um, campaigning on the past and some strange things such as... Um, well, you don't have to like Scott Morrison. You just have to think he's good for the job. Very strange, very strange things happening. Oh, well, on with the show. Actually, one thing I, I do miss uh, f- uh, when doing a pre-poll vote is you don't get a democracy sausage, right? This is one of Australia's greatest traditions, the democracy sausage. And, you know, those stools aren't set up except on polling day itself. 21st of May. So I thought, okay, after I vote, I will go to a pub somewhere that has bangers and mash, right, sausages. And I thought that 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 will be close enough. But the, the Royal Hotel in Springwood, and this is why I voted in Springwood, the Royal Hotel in Springwood was one of the very few pubs that actually had bangers and mash on the menu, none of none of them in in uh, Katoomba do. Uh, the Alex in Lura doesn't. Not that there's a pre-poll place in in Lura. Um, the Lapston Hotel, which is actually more in Blacksland than Lapston, um, has them, but that's a bit tricky to get to um, unless you have a car. Um, so the Royal it was, except the Royal's kitchen isn't open on a Monday. Fucking ripped off. One of the regular segments uh, has been uh, in this mini series, my reporting whinge of the week. And uh, today I want to play you. This is a clip posted last Friday by Eddie Djokovic, or at least part of the clip. You are putting, putting people saying you are across your brief. We will what put people, the six points we of your will policy. Put people at the centre of the NDI. What are None. the six points of your policy, uh, Mr. Albanese? Mr. Albanese, you don't know the policy. Do you not know what it is? You've just been handed your policy document, Mr. Albanese. You don't know. This is embarrassing. Are these the six points here that have to be handed to you by your advisor? Are these the six points then, Mr. Albanese? That's not right. You've just been handed the six points, Mr. Albanese. What are they? That's not all the clip. It's it's just more of the same. Uh, Eddie Djokovic notes, these journalists are absolutely sick, feral and unhinged. This is not normal. This is unprofessional. This is abuse. What type of journalist behaves like this and why don't the others pull them into line? Well, we can come up with our own answers for that. But, yeah, it's this, this whole thing. I've ranted about it before, this whole, you know, memorising and trivia questions and so on. That the job of a prime minister isn't to memorise the wording of things. That's the job of an actor, for example. Now, there is some evidence to suggest that 
a little bit of that shouting in that clip was actually from a different press conference. I haven't had a chance to fact check that and and in a sense doesn't really matter. I I mean journalists were getting just as shouty with Morrison, really, but yeah, they really have started to 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 go into Albon that it's it's a bit pathetic, and that's my reporting whinge of the week. Uh, right, I'm going to need a drink before this next bit. Robert Bellamine Carl Catter, born the 22nd of May 1945, is an Australian politician who's been a member of the House of Representatives since 1993 and he was active in Queensland state politics before that. I'm sure you know the white-haired gentleman. He's 76 years old. Uh, He was once a member of the National Party. That was until 2001. Gee, 21 years ago, when he left to sit as an independent in Queensland and then he formed his own party, Catter's Australian Party, 11 years ago in 2011. This segment is about Bob Catter because two weeks ago at about 11pm on a Thursday night, I received an email from someone um, who I'll call Susan and the headline or the subject line was Bob Catter Yummy. And, quote, Susan, unquote, uh, wrote, I'm obsessed with him, even though he's two years older than my own dad. I think he is sexy as. Sexy as. And I wish he was unfaithful so I could jump on. Um, I didn't quite know what to think about that. Uh, particularly when about an hour and a half later, that same night, I got another email from uh, Susan I knew you'd have to read this. Good. I've had another drink or three since our last contact, and now we're close friends. Maybe you could help me. Hook me up with Bob Catter, even just once, you know, secretly, so I can fulfil a fantasy I can't ignore. I want to taste him in the flesh. Um, Excuse me while I have another sip. The email goes on. It can be your good deed in life. Just think about how good you will feel helping, well, me. Bob Catter, oh yeah, I'll do that part, and a couple of girlfriends I will probably tell details of myself and Bob's secret meeting too, as in Susan will tell her girlfriends of this secret meeting. Uh, Otherwise it's just all secrets. What do you say, she wrote. Can you pull this off for me? I'm serious. Call me to verify. And then her phone number. Now, for for a little while, I thought, is is this some sort of scam? I couldn't work out how it could possibly be a scam. I, I mean, Susan already had my email address, and that's publicly available anyway, as is my phone number. So whatever. I eventually replied, I'm afraid I can't help you with this quest. Bob Catter is in Queensland, and he is mostly a mystery to me. Uh, all of which is true. She replied, Hey, thanks for replying to my email and very sorry you had to read it. I was very drunk and should lock my phone away when drinking like that. My friends and I still laughing about it. I'm not sure why I contacted you for assistance, but I won't do it again. You are very courteous. Well, I, well, I was. So I replied, Well, 
I'm always happy to read things. Um, uh, I will, of course, read this out of my podcast and maybe even run a poll of some kind. Anonymity will be preserved. Meanwhile, here's uh, a related blog post from a decade ago. And the related blog post, uh, and again, I've linked, I've linked to these things on the website. I noted that in a photograph of Bob Catter from when he was a young man, he was quite handsome then too. He's, I mean, he's not ugly now. He's, he's, he's aged well. But he looks very very like journalist Ben Grubb. Click through. You'll see the similarities are amazing. And when I pointed this out to Susan, she said, well, Bob Catter has declared that he's slept with over a 1,000 women. And I thought, no, I need to fact check that bit. Uh, and I found um, uh, an interview with Bob Catter uh, from the Batuta Advocate, that fine uh, well, Australia's oldest newspaper, as as they claim, uh, from 2016. And they say uh, in that interview, or at least in the framing words for that interview, over the last 20 years, this icon of the Deep North has been questioned in the disappearance of several men across his electorate. He's a man who would have played rugby league for Australia if he could keep his fist to himself, a man who is alleged to have slept with over a 1,000 women before settling down in 1970. So, I mean, a thousand women thing. Let's take that with a grain of salt. But Bob Catter, hot or not, hot or not, let me know. I wish I knew what Susan looked like so I could properly get a mental image of her and Bob doing the dirty. Okay, if you don't want to hear about the leaders' debates at all, skip ahead 26 minutes right now. But do listen, because I think I have some things that are worth saying. This is The Great Debate, a 60-minute special event, live from Nine's election headquarters. Yeah, we do have to talk about the debates. Uh, the ones on uh, Nine and Seven in the last week, anyway, I didn't bother listening to that first one uh, on Sky News. I want to make some points about how the debates are structured and how they fit into the democratic process. And that does mean, yeah, I've got to play some clips. Now, Nines was on Sunday night, and, I mean, Chris Ullman's a cunt. As I've said before, his his initials are halfway to, to telling you that. But his first question really, really irritated me. Mr Albanese, your mantra is that everything is going up except your wages. So will you guarantee that wages will rise faster than inflation under Labor? I certainly will guarantee that wages will grow faster 
than they will under this current government. Sorry, the question which, is which, faster which, than inflation. Which, so which, real wages will rise under Labor. Is that what you're promising? Our objective is to have objective. Real, our objective is to have real wage increases, and we have practical plans to do that. But just to summarise, you can't guarantee that real wages will rise. The difference between myself. Yeah, look, we don't need to hear any more of that, and obviously I did clip out most of Albo's answer uh, there. But this whole sort of obsession with the word guarantee, who in their right mind would guarantee that something is going to happen in the future, particularly when it's things you don't have total control over? And what would the guarantee be? Um, That's another thing that, you know, shits me off. When someone says they're guaranteeing it, well... What if it doesn't happen? What will you then do? What is the, what do I get back? Um, you know, it's like if you, you know, a washing machine has a guarantee. It means if the washing machine doesn't work, you get your money back. Doesn't mean you get a working washing machine. It, it's really quite odd. The economy is not a washing machine. I'll say that again. <laughs> the economy is not a washing machine. Now, Ullman was right. Oh, it pains me to say that because he is such an asshole. But he was right to sort of point out that a goal, an objective, is not the same as a promise. But in a way, that's the entire point. And there's been so much questioning in the debates and in the the journalism general general uh, generally. Um. Over, over this, this it's straining at gnats is the phrase, isn't it? Really kind of worrying about these little things. Now, one of the, the big criticisms of Nine's uh, debate uh, was that it got a bit shouty. Now, I'm going to play like a longer clip, so get ready. This is a little over two minutes long, but I want to play all of it, particularly the bit at the end, because I want to point out something. Anyway, here it goes. This is an argument over Labor's home buyers assistance scheme, or at least starts out that way. No, no, this Workers is a to be better off overall. It's pretty simple. Excuse me. We asked you both to ask each other a question. There's been several now. Very quickly, Prime Minister, your second question. Yeah, you, you helped a buy scheme. If there's a family, young person earning eighty thousand bucks a year, very quickly, Prime Minister, eighty thousand dollars a year. And their partner may be earning about $30,000 a year. They'll be eligible for your scheme to go and buy that home. That's right? Yeah. Okay. So let's just say the person who's earning $30,000 decides to go back to work full time. They'll go over $120,000 a year. Now, under your policy, that means they'll have to pay you back your equity at 40%. Now, why is that a good thing to do in the design of that scheme? Or didn't you just think it through? You know what's happening in the design of the scheme? It's based upon schemes that are actually operating. But is that oper- true, what I've just it, told it's you? It's based upon schemes that are actually operating. Yeah, but is that so true? So, for example... Would they have to for, pay for back example, the 40%? You, you will have flexibility in the scheme. But and in terms of Victoria... You've asked your question, Well, no, you haven't Scott. answered it, though. You've asked do your question. Do they have to pay it in, back? In, in Victoria, 
I've just said there will be flexibility and arrangements are yes come no. to. That's they, the way they operate now. That's the way they operate now. In places of like WA, in Victoria, that's not right. You go right, back Scott. to work and you've got that's to sell your right. house. That's not right. It's not, Scott. It's, it's not help to buy, it's forced to sell. Okay, all right. right. Okay, this it, is more, this, that was more of a statement than a question. And, we and will do have back to our panel now. You have supported it in the past. You Anthony, and that's the problem. You have all the Morrison. You've had enough time to ask each other questions. We've given you more than enough. So frustrated when people don't answer. Is this a press conference? Or? <laughs> you have yes or no questions? Can we get a bit more of that, Deb? Over to you. It is Mother's Day today, and I echo wishing all the mothers a happy Mother's Day today. A quick question to both of you: In a sentence, how do you define a woman, Mr. Albanese? An adult female. An adult female. Yeah. Mr. Morrison. Yes, I'm adult. A member of the female sex. Because there's been a degree of confusion around that issue, so good to get your clarity on not that. Not confused at all. I don't think it's confusing. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Yeah, it's not good to hear that stupid fucking question, though, is it? Uh, and people who are deeply into politics or terribly online will know, of course, that this is part of a whole anti-trans thing and it relates to... Uh, oh, you know what it relates to. It's, it's just really depressing. So this is thrown in as some sort of magic gotcha. Just the effect this has on people who are trans or are friends of people who are trans, um, it's all part of this insane Christian conservative war against trans people that's that's flooding out of the UK and the US these days. And and what purpose does that question serve? But to go back to the previous part, Scott Morrison talking over Albo there, and look, to be fair, they talk over each other, you know, throughout the latter part of the debate, and I'll play another clip in a minute. There's a tactic there. It's about firing lots of of rapid-fire questions to overwhelm the person who's trying to speak, which means they they either just plough through and appear not to be answering the question, or they have to stop what they're doing and then kind of spend time answering the question, uh, which may not be a simple yes or no answer. But then there's another question and another question, and... You end up, I mean, with a stack overflow, really, don't you? You have so many outstanding questions fired at you. There's no way that you can respond to all of them in a in a meaningful way. Um, and then it allows whoever gets the last word in to smugly say, "Well, then you didn't answer the question." And we had that there, and the 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 moderator of the of of the discussion just chuckles and. They make a joke of it. It's like, what what purpose did that serve? And a second clip I'll play. This one's only 38 seconds. You'll, you'll cope. But it was later in the debate when Morrison claimed that Labor's defence spokesperson, Richard Miles, runs his speeches past the Chinese government. Now, I don't know the background of this. The average person viewing this on television on a Sunday night would not know what the hell this is about anyway. But basically, this is what 
What happened? Yeah, so, so, so just getting back to your deputy leader Labor, who wants to be Labor the defence minister, Labor who runs his speeches past the Chinese okay, government. Okay, that is an outrageous to, This is truth. I'll, I'll say what Richard Miles did. The questions that the no, voters I'll say are interested in having answered. Richard Miles went to China and criticised their human rights record. Thank you, Mr. Miles. Thank you. No, their human rights record in China. Something that Stuart Robbie, your best mate, Went Mr. to Albanese, China we've when he given was a defence assistant minister. You have had more than enough time. And, and you he got agreed sacked to from his to job, but you put him back in the cabinet before coming on the program tonight. We do David want to Crow. talk about the pandemic as well, Mr. Morrison. You keep telling friend us of the pod, uh, Elise Thomas, noted on Twitter. This is like watching two dads in the car park for the Saturday morning under 14 soccer squabbling about who cut off who for the best parking spot, uh, and then unnecessarily bringing in. The issue of whose kids never passed the ball to whose, and yeah, it was it was it was stupid. And I agree with the headline from Catherine Murphy in the Guardian: "Pity Australia's voters, awful leaders debate cursed by absurd format and incoherent hectoring." All the worst elements of an agonisingly superficial campaign came to a head in a train wreck brawl hosted by Nine on Sunday. And friend of the pod, John Birmingham, wrote uh, on Monday, let's not give Chris Ullman a freebie. I think, to be fair, we'd have to lay blame for last night's raging goat rodeo on someone other than the two stunned ungulates caught in the middle of it all. I mean, points there for stunned ungulates, which fits with that whole um, pattern of of swearing and, and insults that we've spoke about in a recent episode. The format was stupid, but there's two aspects to that. One is, oh, look, we'll fire you questions and you have to uh, get everything out in, in 60 seconds, which is not time to, uh, to explore a complicated issue. What's interesting, though, is that Chris Ullman himself had a big sook couple of days later, because all this criticism, he wrote a, a piece in, in the Nine Facts paper saying, great debate lived up to its name. Uh, here's some words here from, uh, from the Ullman himself. In the vast wilderness of daft opinion on Nine's great debate, the summit of stupidity is the complaint that 60 seconds isn't enough time for a politician to answer a question. Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address is 272 words long. It lasted two minutes and echoes through history. A well-known orator, Edward Everett, spoke before Lincoln. His speech ran for two hours. No one remembers a word of it or him. And then... Chris Ullman then spends a total of 859 words explaining why 60 seconds is enough and having a huge sook. There's an amazing bit where he, he describes The Guardian as post-Christian and he talks about his own experience living in a monastery and having to avoid sin. It's a bit deranged, but read it. It's fun. The ABC's Matt Bevan uh, noted it's funny, um, referring to... Ullman's piece, because there are actually a lot of ways you could have a pleasant, interesting, informative debate between two adversaries. But we're using the same format in the very first televised debate from 40 years ago, plus this, you know, town hall style Q&A sessions, which is, you know, it's, it's you know, a bit like Q&A, yeah, 
uh, the British program is called Question Time, etc. It's a very American idea, the idea that everyone should be able to have their, their question in. Matt Bevan suggests you could just have an unmoderated, unmoderated uh, one-hour TV conversation between the two of them across a table. Uh, you could do a debate open book so they don't just reel off memorised talking points. Uh, you could allow only one microphone to be open at a time. Um, he says that obsessing about the length of answers or equal time is conceding that it's impossible to control the discussion. It's conceding that if not for strict rules, they just scream at each other and filibuster, which is kind of what they did anyway, even with the strict rules. They just ignored them. And here's the point I think is the best one from Matt Bevan. You'd be better off to dec decrease the formality of the event. Let everyone sit down, have them sit close to each other so they don't feel the need to shout, and make it clear to them that the one who shouts least and actually answers questions is the one whose message will get across. And indeed, yes, the staging is important. They're, they're creating at a very old-fashioned Two people standing at a lectern on a stage, a distance apart, talking out at the people. Many years ago, I had the great pleasure of interviewing Sir David Attenborough. Uh, sadly, I don't have the audio handle, uh, handy. But he was once controller of BBC Two. Um, and back in the day, they used to televise drama and early television drama was essentially they put on like a stage play and just pointed a television camera at it or a couple of cameras at it. And it, it took some years for the idea of television drama to become its own genre, to be more filmic and so on, uh, to become a thing. So this idea that th these debates are people standing at, election, uh, at a lectern talking out to people is just... Really quite quaint, yeah. Just just have the two leaders and a couple of journalists sitting at a round table, at a coffee table, um, having a conversation at a normal volume. Um, it, it, it's hard because here I am talking to you, you know, in your earphones or off your laptop speakers or whatever, and I get a bit shouty and and worked up, and I've got to remember to, you know, roll it back. You're sitting, you're sitting right next to me too, but. Television can be an incredibly intimate medium and having a conversation about the topics I think is something that would work well. The other thing I find funny about uh, Chris Ullman's little uh, dummy spit is that, of course, all the religious aspects he, he dragged into it. Uh, Jason Wilson wrote back in well, a few years ago now, uh, he reminded us uh, reminded us that Chris Ullman believes in that whole conspiracy of cultural Marxism, uh, which is a bit anti-Semitic. Um, it's also a bit wrong. Um, but he notices that when Ullman kicked off in The Australian about some issues back then, uh, Jason Wilson says, quote, We might remember what made Ullman so incensed, criticism of him and some further vaguely drawn and unsighted criticisms of Tony Abbott. And when the response to such disagreement is an hysterical repetition of a shibboleth of far-right thinking, who is betraying our journalistic and civic values? Well, Ullman does. He does this all the time. He 
he's a strange beast, and and I think he listens Nine's place in the world, and he's a cunt. Now, Channel 7's debate uh, was held on Wednesday night. Good evening and welcome to the final showdown. There are just 10 days to go before Australia chooses its next leader. And isn't it so exciting, the grand theme, and it's the final showdown. The final showdown. And once more, we had um, the two leaders standing at lecterns. Similar thing, less, less shouty. And um, quite frankly, the, the Sevens version was much better television because after the debate, uh, which you know went relatively smoothly, uh, they crossed over to the, to have their pub test their people, undecided voters in pubs around Australia, who then cast their ballots on bits of paper so they could count them rather than having Nine's disaster uh, of their website not working. Now I've linked to the the results, but overall. Um, you know, N equals 160 in this. Uh, 50% of them saw Albanese as the winner. 34% went with Morrison. 16% undecided. Which is interesting because that does reflect kind of the numbers we see in election polling and 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 so on. As I say, much better television. But again, I want to play you... A grab. This is about a minute because, again, I think this this says something about the format. Families are cash poor. They're stretched on mortgages. What can you do to increase the cash position of families? Well, the, right now, awesome. we've had a $100 billion turnaround in the budget in the last 12 months. And we turned that a budget round by the time we hit the pandemic. Mr Albanese talks about those years before the pandemic. It took us six years to clean up the fiscal mess from the previous government. We got the budget back into balance and then we put in place the single biggest economic intervention in the form of JobKeeper, which I now can say saved more than 800,000 jobs. Now we're doing it again because as Australia comes out of this pandemic, we didn't want them to get hit down by the rising costs of living caused by the war in Europe and the issues in China and the floods that we've seen pushing up fruit and vegetable prices. So we cut fuel tax in half, $250 to pensioners and others on fixed incomes from the government and increased tax relief from the 1st of July, where families up to 126,000 a year will get an extra 420 that they'll keep of money they earn. But the tax cuts we've provided continue into the future because they should keep more of what they earn, and okay. we've always delivered lower taxes. All right, Prime Minister, thank you. You are smashing out those talking points. They, they, they say something. <laughs> it is something, yeah. It means if you've got 60 seconds, you will have someone trying to fill those 60 seconds with all the messages that they want to get out there, all the jumble of words, and it, it doesn't answer the question. And if you were someone suffering financial stress, Listening to that, what do you come away with? What you don't have a coherent answer, or you just have this tumble of words that you know Ukraine shop prices, this floods, pandemic, balance. 
I mean, I, I suspect that that the people who plan these strategies say, yeah, just keep repeating these key words and, you know, these are the same key words as in our TV ads and in everything else and it doesn't really matter. But it doesn't help. And this isn't a criticism of Morrison um, because every politician does this. I will say, though, that for Morrison and, – and look, if you want something really fun to read about Morrison, in the Sydney Review of Books, James Lay – wrote a fantastic essay called The Parable of the Amen Snorter and the Rotten Fish, the Amen Snorter being Scott Morrison. Uh, Amen Snorter is an old term along with God Botherer and and Sky Pilot and all of of that for uh, an evangelical Christian. I'll read just one paragraph. For Morrison, words are just distracting noises that come out of a hole in his head. They're not connected to any logic or fact or principle. They're not constrained by anything he has said or done in the past, nor do they commit him to any future course of action. To expect otherwise is to make a categorical error. Categorical. I, I would just say category error, but you know that's what James Lay wrote. Check for the link on the website. The parable of the amen snorter and the rotten fish. Now, one bit in Seven's debate, they they tease that there would be a question that could stump them both. Rob Stop, journalist, said, the question that could stump them both had better be, who would you turn gay for? Which was Rove McManus's old uh, question on his uh, TV show. Now, that's a fantastic gag. But I think the point underneath that is, is serious. If political journalists just keep asking politicians the same political questions then you'll just get the same prepared political answers. If you want something new, you have to ask something new. For example, if the the topic is character and both the nine and the seven debates had a section on exploring character, they just asked each one to say what they thought of the other person's character. And that just means they'll repeat the criticisms before. What you need to do is ask them an unexpected question, the answer to which will reveal their character. You know, what's the greatest sacrifice you've ever made for your career? Um, you know, I, 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 you can think of them. The problem is political journalists are the wrong people to do this. For that sort of conversation, you want... A, a, a general interviewer. Now, I I could name some famous names from the past. Andrew Denton, who had the, the brilliant ABC television series Enough Rope. The the master of them all from the UK, Michael Parkinson, although he did uh, uh, deal with entertainers mostly. Uh, David Frost, uh, who you know interviewed Richard Nixon, uh, the American president, at, at great length, and it's still amazing looking back at those interviews. You want to draw information out of someone, but but the problem is, as I say, if you ask a question that they're expecting and political journalists always ask the same fucking questions because they're filling the same slot on the front page of their paper that's already been mapped out in their head, it's just a question, a answer, an answer, but a answer, a question, a answer. Um... And then it's not connected to anything. Have a look back at, if you can find them, the episodes of Enough Rope with Andrew Denton. 
the way he weaves a narrative and then asks like a question building from that which which gets to the point he eventually wanted to make I'm not quite sure who would be a good interview to do that these days certainly not the, the standard political talk show hosts because again they're part of the thing hmm. something I, I should probably think about more Ross Float on Twitter uh, summarised the campaign reporting overall, not just the debates. He actually wrote this on Twitter before uh, this week's debates. Uh, but he was talking about criticism of the, the, the journalists. And he said, well, journalists tend to respond with a version of this is how the sausage is made. Well, now we've seen inside the sausage factory. We've decided sausages aren't on the fucking menu anymore. What else do you got? Because we're still very hungry. Maybe that's it. Maybe we just don't want the fucking sausages anymore. Last week I uh, spoke at length about public housing. Apparently we call it social housing these days for some reason. Uh, anyway, I want to draw your attention uh, to a piece written last month on, on the 9th of April edition of the Saturday Paper by Claire Connolly, headline, Eviction by Dereliction, the Decay of Public Housing. Uh, she writes that housing initiatives uh, that are purporting to create a social mix are a convenient way for governments to avoid building new social housing or to neglect existing stock while shifting public land into private ownership. Uh, as I said uh, in that episode, um, it used to be uh, back in the 1990s around 8% of housing uh, was public housing. Uh, these days it's only about 4%. Uh, and yet uh, the, uh, the inequality of, of people's wealth is, is much greater than before. Anyway, um, have a look at that. Link on the podcast website. Now, next episode of this mini series uh, will be next Thursday, the 19th of May, just two days before the election itself. Uh, if there's anything you think I should have a look at, let me know uh, in the usual ways. Fire Twitter is often the, the most effective, unless I've muted you or blocked you or something. <laughs> More people are muted than perhaps uh, they know. Um, Anyway, by the by, uh, yeah, this is the housekeeping bit. Uh, this podcast is, of course, supported by you, the generous listener. Now, I want to say that I've already started the crowdfunding campaign for the 9pm winter series of special guest episodes, and that's something you can pledge your support to. And I will say I've already lined up a guest, even though there's still two episodes of the autumn series to go, which will happen before the end of, of May. I'm, I'm just going to focus on that once uh, once the election is out of my brain. Uh, but I've already lined up a fantastic guest for one of the winter series, economist Umair Hack, who's uh, – you may know him on Twitter, Umair H, U-M-A-I-R-H. H. Uh, he's author of the book The New Capitalist Manifesto and also uh, a more recent book, Betterness Economics for Humans. Uh, and he also has a fantastic blog where he, uh, well, he's really a chronicler of the decline of America into fascism. So we'll be talking about those things uh, and disco because he also makes disco. Um, 
So that I'm really looking forward to that. But if you want those special guest episodes to happen, uh, please support The Thing, and you can find The Thing at the9pmedict.com slash winter2022. That's the9pmedict.com slash winter2022. At the time of recording, we're 20% of the way to the first target, uh, and there's two weeks to go, so please do the needful before uh, the 26th of May uh, at 9pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. Uh, all the usual things there. Meanwhile, uh, it's thanks this episode to a few people who've contributed in, in the last week. Andrew Groom, thank you, Andrew. He says, enjoying the election coverage and associated disturbing mental imagery, please keep it up. That is lovely. Thank you, Andrew. And I, I am keeping it up. Um, and I think I'll probably do a post-election wrap as well on, on the 26th, but we'll see. Thank you also to Dave Gorkroger, Mark Cohen and Sam Spackman. All uh, repeat generosities uh, from those people. Uh, so thank you to everyone. And now um, back to the thing. Okay, time to update the hingeometer, uh, the magical device in my brain which measures the amount of unhinging that's been happening during the election campaign and, and which may continue as a regular segment once, uh, once this is all over. Now, last week we ended up with a final hingeometer score of plus 36 points of unhinging. Cheers. Um, a lot of the, the, those things are still happening, but a, f- a few things have faded. Uh, we're mostly past the chicken curry drama, for example, uh, and a few other bits and pieces uh, deduct that. So I'm resetting it um, from 36 points down to 23 positive points of unhinging. I will not be showing you my working out. Now, as I say, a week is a long time in politics, Now, that saying um, is usually attributed to the British Prime Minister Harold Wilson in the mid-1960s. Apparently, uh, some people think it was made up by Gough Whitlam in the 1970s, but but no, that's not the case. Uh, But even though a week is a long time in politics, the fucking trivia questions continue. And in particular, Anthony Albanese is copying them. What do, you, what do you think the rate of inflation will be in a year's time under Labour? <laughs> that, that, that's a question for economists. The idea that... Oh, it's a question for a Prime no, Minister. No, The idea that anyone could predict what the rate of inflation was uh, a year ago uh, now is, of course... Uh, a, a triumph of hope over experience. Now, I'm giving that... I would normally give that anyway a plus one unhinging because it's just a stupid question. But combined with that shouty clip from earlier, that that montage of people shouting at Anthony Albanese, I'm going to give it another plus two, making that one plus three in all. Friend of the pot, John Birmingham, um, another mention of him, uh, he wrote a, a wonderful piece the other day called Boob Election Shocker, Donald Duck Pantsless Shower Scene Scandal. A lot to think about there, uh, but he uh, he noted some of this uh, this focus on trivialities 
by writing, and, and I quote JB, way back in 1957, C. Northcote Parkinson identified the law of triviality as a lay-down fucking misere in which we puny humans, we flawed and feeble creatures, would inevitably invest our time and attention on the inconsequential piss-waddle that at least we understood, or thought we understood, in preference to doing the hard work of finding out the real stuff, formulating a plan for dealing with it, and executing on that motherfucker with some semblance of focus and rigour. The example in the Wikipedia page, uh, for example, is um, is that people in discussing a nuclear power plant would would skip over some of the important engineering aspects, uh, and uh, but spend a lot of time focusing on what colour to paint the bicycle shed. I uh, experienced this myself many years ago when I was at university, uh, a meeting of the Adelaide University Union, the Students Union, where there was a discussion about. Uh, some major renovations of one of their buildings, which was going to cost $100,000, and that just went through on the nod. But moments later, there was a discussion uh, whether to buy the the cleaners a new industrial vacuum cleaner, which is going to cost $1,000. And it ended up being a a 20-minute discussion at least over whether we should spend $1,000 on a vacuum cleaner, because that sounds like a very expensive vacuum cleaner. I could get a vacuum cleaner for $100 without any understanding, well, it's an industrial vacuum cleaner. It'll last for 10 years. And also, this is what the cleaner recommended, and they're the ones who know. Um, why Why are we discussing – why are we spending all this time discussing 1000 bucks when we just – wave through $100,000. What the fuck is wrong with you? Of course, we all know why uh, we have these questions. You know, They're trying to get that four-second image of a politician looking awkward and then the journalist looking smug. Uh, anyway, look, I've linked to JB's uh, alien side boob, Colin, there. Uh, but in, in the spirit of what is a woman... Plus three unhinging points just for stupid fucking questions in general. That's that's on top of the plus three for just that one to elbow. Um, posted on Twitter um, a, on a fence in Kuyong, which uh, you may remember is uh, a marginal seat now in in Victoria. Um, Josh Frydenberg's seat. Uh, the poster reads. A Liberal Party supporter, asterisk, I'll come back to that, stole my Monique Ryan poster. Monique Ryan being the Teal Independent running for that seat. This may have been because of hate for women, fear of ICAC, or contempt for the environment my children inherit. Uh, And then at the bottom it said, or maybe they were just very angry and afraid. Uh, And rather than Liberal, the asterisk, Asterisk uh, leads to, or like-minded conservative, witnesses reported an angry middle-aged man. Now, people stealing each other's election posters is not new, but it is just a bit weird this year, and that's a fantastic uh, uh, response. Uh, And for this middle-aged man uh, being angry, so plus two points for poster stealing. Now... 
Fiona Martin, the Liberal MP for Reid in Sydney. She thought she was doing well on 2GB in uh, radio in Sydney on Wednesday when she was uh, debating her Labor rival, Sally Situ, uh, where, well, this is what happened. You don't live in the electorate. She wasn't born in the electorate. Who yeah, cares? Well, I grew up in the electorate. I've got deep roots in the electorate and I care very much. So, Ben, much. I just want to know, I didn't, I didn't want to raise this, but I chose to live in this electorate because I love the community. Because you found son. an opportunity and you couldn't run in Fowler. Christina Keneally kicked you out of Fowler too. Now she's just making things up. I mean, that's how ridiculous this debate has gotten. And I'm really sorry that your listeners have had to listen to that. My, we were fortunate enough to be able to afford to buy a little townhouse in Homebush, and I'm really proud of that. My son goes to the local school. I'm on the PNC. He plays in the local football team. It's a community that we love, and we are proud to be raising our family there. Now, the reason Sally Satu um, is probably a bit confused about claims that she was kicked out of Fowler is that the potentially Labor candidate who was kicked out of Fowler was in fact uh, a local council member by the name of um, Tu Lei, who's Vietnamese, not Chinese. Um, but, you know, they all look the same to white people, don't they? Um, <sighs> Fiona Martin uh, denies being confused um, but uh, a journalist uh, put it to Scott Morrison uh, that that her explanation doesn't actually make any sense. Your colleague Fiona Martin appears to have confused her challenger, um, uh, Sally Situ, with another Asian Australian. Is it fair for Asian Australians to be uh, stereotyped or generalised in this way? And do you think Ms Situ deserves an apology for what is quite an offensive comment for well, Asian well, Australians? Dr Martin has already made statements on that issue today, and, and no, that wasn't the case. No, that, that her defence doesn't make sense. Oh, Situ hasn't I'm sorry, I don't accept that because she's made that statement and she's made it, she's made it very clear. No, no, I'm sorry. She's she's made a statement. I'll refer you to the statement. I think it makes it very clear. Yeah, this uh, bit of chaos isn't going to go away. Plus two unhinging points for that, just because. Just say you made a mistake. You got confused with the other person, but. If you, if you see the video of that exchange, the first exchange um, between uh, Martin and, and uh, Situ, you'll see that F uh, Fiona Martin thinks she's made such a huge point and does a whole little victory pout. Yes, I got you there. It's like, no, you didn't, you twat. Anyway, plus two, as I say, for that. Um, and now... Abortion the American way. Uh, as you may know, I'm in the Blue Mountains near Wentworth Falls. Uh, this is the seat of Macquarie, the most marginal seat in Australia, which uh, Susan Templeman, uh, a Labor MP, holds by a margin of 0.2%. Uh, she's been targeted uh, by a campaign uh, claiming she wants to extend abortion and late term abortions and all of that, uh, by a, a pro-life group called Cherish Life. Um, and their evidence, I mean, this is bullshit, their evidence is that 
there's a bit in Labor's 2021 national platform uh, on sexual and reproductive health which says the party wants to, quote, expand service provision in the public system for sexual and reproductive health more broadly. Uh, that relates to all manner of things. Uh, but um, this group, Cherish Life, reckons that means more abortions. Plus one for that. On a related note, uh, Josh Taylor from The Guardian uh, tweeted that uh, we should check out uh, how the Mother of the Year Award is going because it used to be run by Bernardo's, the charity, but the award... Uh, is now run, uh, I mean, under the same name, different award, uh, by a right-wing religious organisation. So who do you think is Mother of the Year for 2022? The answer, dear listener, is Pauline Hanson. Senator Pauline Hanson, yes. As a family voice, this new organisation, says, why does this person deserve the award? Pauline has been a true mother and indeed a wonderful grandmother with four children and six grandchildren. Pauline Hanson exploded upon the Australian political scene with her landmark maiden speech to Parliament after she was elected the member for Oxley in 1996, showing her commitment to community by saying that Australia would be swamped by Asians and then, of course, later it's swamped by Muslims. Pauline Pantsdown, uh, the drag parody of Pauline um, Hanson, uh, noted that uh, they're kind of impressed at the coverage Family Voice get with these troll tactics. I mean, they're essentially two old dudes in a box of used tissues from Adelaide. And it's true. It's true. They're called Family Voice now, but the organisation was founded in Adelaide in 1972 as the Australian Festival of Light and Community Standards Organisation. And uh, that name and inspiration is from uh, the British organisation, the Nationwide Festival of Light, which was founded the year before, 1971. And was that Mary Whitehouse's... Anyway, look it up for yourself, I've linked to the, the thing. Plus three for that bit of unhinging. Pauline Hanson as mother, as mother of the year when, in fact, she's been estranged uh, from some of her kids. The unhinging over Catherine Deves, the Liberal candidate for Warringah, continues. Uh, she who has said all sorts of uh, transphobic and anti-gay and just straight-up weird things. Uh, it has been noted that the Liberals are starting to split over whether she should be supported or not. Uh, two headlines from, from uh, where are these guys? These are from the, the nine papers today. Um, one says Josh Frydenberg distances himself from Scott Morrison over Catherine Deves. And the other one, Tony Abbott begs Liberals to get behind Deves as volunteers abandon campaign. That is high-grade unhinging between the two wings of the party. Uh, sorry, the two factions. Sorry, the two schools of thought. The Liberal Party doesn't have factions. Remember that. Uh, plus three. Plus three for the continued unhinging over Catherine Deves. She's not going to win anyway. Warringah's uh, very clearly from the polling going to go uh, to the independent. Uh, what else we got? Ah, uh, yes. I want to wrap this up 
with Phil Curry, who writes for the Financial Review. Uh, he was talking on ABC RN Breakfast the other day about Anthony Albanese's plan for the minimum wage to be uh, – match to inflation, which at the moment uh, is 5.1% per annum. In, in economic terms, it, it, it is a blunder and and it certainly wouldn't be playing well um, amongst especially small and medium business owners uh, who probably would have you know, had conniptions yesterday when they heard it. Um, you know, as you, you explored in your interview with Tony Burke and Stuart Roberts, there's a lot of factors that have to be taken into account. You don't just peg the wage rate to the, the headline inflation rate. That's sort of a one-way trip to a Weimar Republic, you know, if you, if you take it to its extreme conclusion. Yeah, a 5% wage rise will lead to hyperinflation, just like in Germany. And that'll lead to Nazis, presumably. The question I have for Phil Curry is, who are all of these uh, small business owners who were planning on voting Labor in the first place? Like, who? Why? Plus two points for some quality... Weimar Republic unhinging. So that brings the total to, as I said, it was 36 points last week. We start off this week at 23. Oh, no, no, no. That comes to plus 42 points of unhinging. One more episode to go before the election. If you have any examples of uh, classic unhinging, uh, please send them in. Thank you very much for uh, settling in with me uh, for the last hour. Yes, it's just gone an hour, this episode. I'm going to keep going because I I did have a few other things to say. Um, and this, that includes things other than the election. I have, uh, in each uh, election episode, thrown in uh, some things which are not related to the election. Uh, I have three today. One is... The news from the United States uh, that Americans are continuing to wrongly blame people of Asian descent for the coronavirus and and the figure of those distrusting Asians' loyalties to America is going up. The state of play is that 21% of American adults now say that Asian Americans are at least partly responsible for COVID. Uh, last year it was 11%, this year 21%. Weird country. Also from uh, the America, General Michael Flynn, much loved of sovereign citizens and conspiracy theorists, he believes that 5G technology will unleash a new pathogen hidden inside the COVID vaccine. Here's a two-minute clip. And now... It has become common knowledge that the lipid nanoparticles found inside the COVID-19 vaccine can carry pathogens that can be activated uh, with the right frequency being sent to them. So mm -hmm. there's it's, it's, it's a terrifying time to be an American. Uh, sir, how do you process this and what, what would you encourage our listeners to do today, sir? Well, I mean, number one, because this, this pathogen that you just talked about, I think that then there's some great articles written about how it relates 5G technology that is being uh, in, input basically globally. But I statement is that because uh, this is a good versus versus evil time. It is actually one of the most mm -hmm. consequential periods 
in history to be alive. But they're t- talking out loud that lipid nanoparticles in the shots contain pathogens. Preparing for that. Here we go. Backing it up. Here we go. Here we go. We know that Marburg is not particularly contagious, but it has an extraordinarily high rate um, of fatality. And we know the mechanism by which this will be released. And that is inside of these shots that people already received, inside the lipid nanoparticles, the hydrogel, there exists pathogens inside of the particles that have not yet opened. Those pathogens are chimeric. They include E. coli Marburg, Ebola staphylococcus, and brewer's yeast, amongst others. We know that upon the broadcast from the 5G system that is now employed across the United States and the world for that matter, um, when they broadcast an 18 gigahertz signal uh, for one minute, three different times as a pulse, it will cause those lipid nanoparticles to swell and release these pathogenic contents, thereby causing a Marburg epidemic that they've already spent the money on. They've already, it's already done, right? The Marburg epidemic for purposes of the law has happened. And now we just need the actual uh, disaster to happen. And, and there's actually worse parts to it than that, including the 1P36 gene deletion that effectively will turn those poor people into zombies. And 1P36 deletion syndrome is an actual side effect listed by Pfizer related to the COVID-19 vaccines. And uh, that would cause you to begin to have seizures, begin to bite people and to have problems with your frontal lobe. Uh, it's a lot. It's it's heavy. A symptom. Wow. Uh, dear listener, if if you have been vaccinated and f- find yourself uh, becoming a zombie with an urge to bite people, please let me know or move further away from the 5G phone that you're carrying. And, uh, and third and final in this segment, Miriam Margulies, the British actor, uh, who, uh, as I mentioned whenever it was in a recent episode, that I'm enjoying listening to her the audiobook of her memoir, This Much Is True, continues to have quite a bit about blowjobs in it. Anyway, uh, this eight-second clip of her was posted on the Twitter the other day. Uh, I'm very political. I'm very much on the left. So if you're on the right... Fuck off, cunt face. A few final observations now. Uh, In an election advert released on Tuesday, the Liberal Party is actually reminding people that Scott Morrison keeps saying, that's not my job. They seem to think that playing the words, that's not my job... And then a longer clip, giving the context, will solve the problem. It's it's weird. So here's the ad. It, it's a TV ad, but the ad starts with a black screen and the words, Labor's campaign is a lie. And then... That's not my job. Why haven't you personally lost patience with Dan Andrews? Because that's not my job. My job is to to keep focused on the challenge that I have to protect Australians every single day. That's not my job, or whatever it happens to be. Um, It's their money. It's their choice. I'm not going to go around telling Australians how to spend their own money. Um, That's not my job. They're quite, quite able to know what they should be doing with their own money. It's not my job to do that. But this is going to be really tough. I mean, these things are going to break our hearts, but it's not going to break our spirit. Are you frightened? It's not my job to do that. Are you it's my job to be not at all. 
Look, in situations like this, you've just got to act on the information, make decisions and communicate clearly. And then the words on a black screen, don't reward Labor's lies. Authorised by Ahurst Liberal Canberra. Why would you deliberately keep repeating the line that your opponents are using against you? I'm reminded of that magic moment in 1973 on the 17th of November. Um, I mean, I don't remember it directly, of course, but I remember it from history when then-President of the United States, Richard M. Nixon, said this. And I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes, but in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. I'm not a crook. Yeah, why would you need to say that? That's one of the most famous clips of Nixon, of course. Uh, you, you young folk may not know the full story, the debacle, the decline and fall of a Richard Milhouse Nixon. Uh, go look it up. Heaps of fun. The other weird thing about that Liberal ad that I just played is that Paul Murray, the Sky News host, tweeted, great ad from the Libs exposing ALP lies in their ads. Please share. Lots of people see what he really said. Hashtag PM Live APM AET Sky News Australia. Yeah, well, thank you uh, for your bias. Cam Wilson, friend of the pod, journalist at Crikey, notes... Is it normal for media figures to openly ask people to share political parties' ads? Uh, well, well, not if they considered themselves to be journalists, no. But then, you know, it's Sky News Australia, isn't it? Let's look at the betting odds. It's all the same, really. Sports bet, uh, the odds I cite for no particular reason. Uh, bet responsibly, don't bet what money do things, betting is silly, this is all stupid, It's it's this doesn't predict anything. But the betting market has settled really down now, $1.35 for a Labor win, $3.20 for a Coalition win, $101 for anything else, which is... Which, which, like, no, is not a thing. Um, I, I personally don't see that changing very much over the next nine days, but we'll see. And look, let's let's just sneak in a couple of quick quotes that I quite liked this week. Tim Dunlop wrote, Scott Morrison says, we have the strongest economic recovery in the world. Also, Scott Morrison, an 80, a 38 cents per hour rise in wages in real terms will crash it to the ground. You can have, yeah, if it is such a strong economy, give everyone an extra buck an hour. What's your fucking problem? And finally, 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 from the Saturday paper, a wonderful quote from a liberal, uh, an unknown liberal source, uh, commenting on how former Prime Minister John Howard had been wheeled around to some key electorates. 
I look at John Howard as the angel of death, the Liberal says, of the significance of his presence. You don't send John Howard somewhere you don't need him. John Howard, the angel of death. Nine sleeps to the election, people. Nine sleeps. That's the edict for now. Uh, please go to the 9pmedict.com slash winter2022 and pledge your support for more special guest episodes. The next episode of the election sub-series will be next Thursday, the 19th of May. Until then, I'm still Gerian. Wash your hands and vote early, vote often. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.